0: Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Zach Widman, founder of ZHW Properties. Zach founded ZHW Properties in 2019. The company represents institutional self-storage buyers and the purchase of over $181 million in self-storage transactions. Prior to founding ZHW, Zach worked at one of the largest privately owned self-storage companies and was one of their top in-house acquisition broker. During his time with the firm, Zach originated and closed over $173 million in self-storage transactions across eight states. Zach received a Bachelor of Science and Business major from Skidmore College. All right, Zach, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to have you.
1: Hey, thanks, Tom, for having me. Hopefully, all's well with you and quarantine during this crazy time.
0: Yeah, it certainly is different, and we will get to that. Zach, for those of you who don't know, he's engrossed himself in the storage world. Zach, why don't you tell us about how you got started and how you got to the point where you're at?
1: Yeah, so I kind of got in by accident. I was in college and you know, like most juniors in college who are kind of going through the internship process, I was just applying to everything that I really could. I wanted to get exposure to real estate and finance. And when I was a freshman and sophomore in college, I had worked two real estate jobs when I was a freshman. I got lucky and I worked for this company in New York City. And they were kind of a brokerage firm and they bought and sold a lot of multifamily buildings. And I was one of the guys in the boil room. They had this big cold call center and they had about 13 college kids come in for the summer and just blast away calls. And it was a very hectic environment, very cutthroat. But I loved like kind of the energy and the intensity of it and it was in midtown Manhattan and we were calling owners all over the place. And I, my job was to make meetings and appointments for the bosses, the firm to go try to buy the building. So I got a really good taste for real estate then. And then I kind of parlayed that into working at another company doing property management. And then so the next summer, I was a leasing manager at an apartment building. And that actually was a nice change. because I got to kind of see the tenant interactions with the management company Lease apartments. It was just a good taste for what management looks like. So, going into the junior year, I was thinking, okay, maybe I do something a little bit more on the finance end of things. But to be honest, my GPA wasn't high enough for any of the Wall Street banks. I think I had like a 3 4, and there was like a 3 7 cutoff. So, it didn't really work out. And I was just sending applications out. And someone told me, they said, you should look at this firm that happened to be in your college town. And it was, a large storage owner. So I applied not really knowing what storage was. I mean, I'd seen it on the highway. And then when I got to the firm, to be honest, I was kind of just doing some management work, kind of just helping them out with paperwork and different filings. And then one day the CEO of the firm walked by and said, "How you doing? And how are you keeping busy?" And I was like, "Well, you know, just doing some paperwork for you guys. I haven't been kept that busy, but at that point i had about a month or so to think about what i wanted to do and i decided that with the limited skills i learned kind of in that boiler room in new york city i wanted to get on the phones and start calling storage owners and bringing in deals i kind of convinced them that i could do it and started doing it for the firm and did it for a couple of years became one of their in-house acquisitions guys and my job was to acquire properties mostly the northeast Kind of Maine down to Florida and then Midwest, and that was a great experience. I learned a ton there. I started off kind of just working the phones and kind of bringing in numbers and setting up appointments and meetings, and then the firm really taught me how to underwrite, how to look at deals, how to look at the contracts, and help negotiate the contracts. And it was really a great experience because I got fully engrossed in the whole process in terms of start to finish even helping them with due diligence. And it was kind of my step into the industry. I got to travel a lot throughout the country and go to different places. And that was kind of how I got into it there.
0: Now, I want to back it up a bit. So you mentioned you're applying. I assume you're applying to places like J.P. Morgan, Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs, where you kind of put off when someone said self-storage. Did you think you were above it for a little bit or how'd that go down?
1: Not at all, honestly. I never liked to follow the crowd in anything I did anyway. I don't think I realized it at the time, but someone once told me that sometimes it's the least sexy real estate that actually can bring the best returns. And I kind of had heard that at the time. And I was actually really infatuated with self-storage for that reason, because it kind of had all the elements of multifamily, a little bit of industrial vibe to it, the technology that was being applied to the industry. Reminded me of kind of the airline industry and how there's a lot of revenue management systems that can be done to optimize revenue. And then I also started to realize kind of the importance of storage and realized people don't use storage as a hobby; it's really a need based business. And when I started to think about that and kind of how it affects small businesses, how people use it for life changes, whether it's deaths, divorce, displacements, moving, job changes, millennials living in smaller apartments. I just started to really be fascinated how it's so tied in with societal change and culture and what's going on with the economy. And I just realized how needed it is of an asset class. I don't think I fully understood why people needed it at the time. And I think it made me appreciate the industry a lot more. But no, I definitely didn't care that it was maybe thought of as a lesser product. I always thought it was good to go into something and be kind of a specialist at something. Growing up, I was an athlete and I pretty much played one sport all the time and I thought I was pretty good at the time at that sport. But I kind of figured that I could apply that to real estate and not be the master of a whole big industry and kind of find a niche and be a specialist. And that's kind of what I wanted to do.
0: So uh, your previous employer, do you remember your first deal?
1: I do. Yeah. It's actually a pretty funny story because I was probably 20 years old at the time. And I realized really quickly that most of the owners of these assets were 50, 60 years old. And if they knew my age, I knew that I would never be able to get a deal done for at least five years, right? Because who would want to do business with a 22-year-old and sell their multi-million dollar asset to a 22-year-old in college or right out of college? So I remember the first meeting, I was kind of saying, All right, don't ask my age, don't ask my age, don't ask my age. I might've even tried to talk with a deeper voice just to. Play, play off that I was a little bit older, and I'm at the meeting, and the guy says to me, "So you're married, right?" And I kind of paused for a second. I was so nervous about telling him my age that I just said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm 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 getting married in a year, and you know things are going really well." And I just went with it because I was so afraid of losing the deal because they would judge of my age. So I kind of just went with the story for the meeting, and I don't even think I had a girlfriend at the time or anything. So it was pretty funny.
0: Does your former employer still own that deal that you took down?
1: They do. I think they might sell it, but from what I see, yeah, they still own that property. So it was a smaller deal. Massachusetts, it was $3.6 million. I remember the negotiation being really tense. There's a piece of land next door that we wanted, and we thought it was coming with a deal. He thought we had to pay up extra. and I remember it being a really tense negotiation because I had to negotiate getting the land and then my boss the the owner of the firm there he did a great job kind of coaching me through how to bring both pieces together but i remember being really tense and i was pretty scared because i was just getting shouted at on the phone by the seller so but it was a good learning experience and i'll never forget i couldn't believe that i did it at that age and it was awesome i loved it so once that happened i was hooked and i just wanted to keep doing more and more and more of these and uh I loved the traveling and the hunt and the chase. And that was the most fun part.
0: Why would a large firm or firm at all need an acquisitions analyst? Don't they list properties that they're trying to sell? Isn't there a whole industry of brokers that are trying to sell these properties?
1: A lot of companies, they'll have their own acquisition guys because sometimes they'll want to go direct to the owners. So what a lot of the firms do these days is they'll have their inside guys who will develop grassroots relationships with owners. And then those same acquisitions, people will also work with the brokers. So it's a big space, right? And there's 50,000 owners. I mean, a lot of those are corporate owned, owned by private equity. But you figure there's still thirty, forty thousand 40,000 owners out there. Not every relationship is going to be made. So a lot of these companies will either go direct through owners or they'll bid on them through brokers and they'll have the relations with brokers. So it really depends. But when you're really trying to put a lot of money out, you have to kind of dabble in all corners to just expose yourself to the most deal flow because not every deal is going to pencil out. And in fact, probably depending on how you're bringing in deals, you might only have two out of the 10 deals that actually might be pencil. So you need to bring in a lot of volume and a lot of opportunities and See a lot of people to get deals done. It just helps with the volume. I would say it's a numbers game in the sense of how you're going to get the deal done. You need to see a lot of opportunities to get one or two done.
0: What are the advantages of an off-market deal? Well, there's definitely
1: pros and cons to it. I mean, I guess the pros would be the obvious ones. You're not necessarily bidding on the property against other people. You have the seller's ear direct, so there's no intermediary. Maybe you're going through which could lead to maybe better pricing or a special type of closing or different things you can arrange with them. But there's also cons to it too. Some of the cons are sometimes the owners might not necessarily be ready to sell. So you might be convincing them to do it at a time they don't want to and they weren't ready. In that case, they might command a higher price to start. Also, sometimes when a property is on the open market, the pricing is more maybe price to market. So you're starting off at maybe a more reasonable negotiating point, opposed to an off market deal where sometimes you could argue the owner kinda of has the advantage in the sense that you're coming after them. So they can start at a higher point. I see advantages in both, to be honest, advantages and disadvantages. It really depends on the unique situation in terms of where the owner is at that point in time. But I've seen it really benefit to go off market and then I've seen it really benefit to go on market. So I think every situation is different. I don't think like off-market or on-market deals necessarily just better than each other. I think you could find examples in both scenarios where they are.
0: So how have you seen cap rates move from the time you started until now? When I
1: got in, it was 2016. And I remember when we were buying deals, at least some of the off-market deals we were buying, when I started, we were probably doing Six and a half to high, maybe low to mid sevens, we were able to get some of those done. Now, I would say on stabilized deals, so deals with cash flow, if you're on the market right now, it's tough to pencil out deals that are in the six cap range. It's tough to find deals that have a six cap range on going existing, trailing 12 numbers with adjusted expenses and whatnot. So it's gotten super competitive, especially the past two, three years. And I think what's really driven it up is it's just been a supply and demand issue. And it's definitely been a seller's market the past three, four years. There's just a ton of buyers. The REITs are aggressive. The private equity companies are aggressive. And even the private one-off shops, like, you know, you'll find some just multifamily investors who are local investors and they want to 1031 and put money to work and they know storage is a safe asset class. So um, there's just been a lot of buyers for that reason and limited good deals. Um, I think most of the buyers these days want to stick towards cash flow, stabilized deals in this environment. Um, one could argue that there's a huge opportunity in their certificate of occupancy, new lease up deal space because no one could figure out necessarily how to price those deals. Cause there's a lot of unknown um, which creates some, you know, reward, but there's definitely a ton of risk in those. But in terms of like your existing bread and butter, 50,000 square foot, uh 1990s drive-up property um 90 occupied mm, below rate market property that stuff goes off the shelves like hotcakes if it's in a decent area with you know a strong population so um yeah cap rates have definitely gone down just due to the pure you know demand from buyers and limited supply deals
0: at blue collar yield We're all about entrepreneurialism. It sounded like you're having positive experience at your previous employer. What made you want to leave there and start your own firm?
1: Well, I actually took a break from self-storage for about eight months, nine months or so. It was more a personal thing for me. So I wanted to be closer to family down in Jersey and friends down here. And so I kind of made the decision to just leave the storage industry for a little bit. And I ended up getting into business with friends friend from high school who actually helped me get a job at that firm in New York City where I was a cold caller back in the day and working in that boiler room in New York City. And we kind of had an idea to essentially acquire en masse buildings in one neighborhood. So we were looking at a neighborhood in New Jersey that we thought had a lot of underutilized, underperforming properties, but it also had a really good proximity to New York City really good growth, low vacancy, pride and ownership in the assets that just weren't being kind of institutionally run in that sense and capitalized. So I started teaming up with him and we put together a strategy to go and essentially start a management company in that neighborhood and start buying up and syndicating buildings that were five to ten units, mostly multifamily. So I did that with him and we acquired one small property. We syndicated that, raised some money it was a rehab project. It's five units and we're converting it to seven units and then we're going to sell it. So, it was a good project and I learned a lot about multi and I kind of realized throughout that time I kind of missed storage to be honest and I just saw more opportunity in the self storage space than in multifamily. I think just multifamily I don't want to say storage doesn't have competition, but I think it's just an older business and There's just not a lot of young, aggressive guys in storage, and multifamily is pretty institutional. And you have people leaving Ivy League schools, going into these big firms, but I just didn't see that in storage. So I thought it was a better opportunity for me to kind of rise in industry and kind of become a specialist. And I felt like I could add more value in that industry as well due to my experiences and knowledge from my prior company.
0: So, what does CHW Properties do now? And what value do you guys add as a company? And what do you focus on outside of obviously storage, but day to day wise?
1: There's two sides of the business. The first side is where we have an off market brokerage company. So, we specialize in acquiring stabilized self storage deals throughout the country. The difference is we do everything off market and we work and represent buyers. So, similar to where I used to work and kind of the method of acquiring properties. We work with five or six companies right now, and we help them put together deals all over the country. It's a pretty simple model. And that's kind of the, the side hustle, I should say, is I've teamed up with two other friends in the industry, and we've been starting to actually syndicate our own storage deals. This year we're on track to do our second deal. We might do two or three a year, hopefully. It's obviously very hard to raise money for deals in this environment, but it makes me a better broker and it makes me just a better person in the industry now that I have kind of experience owning an asset and managing the asset. So yeah, that business I've been trying to grow and hopefully that business will grow more in the future where it will become my full-time job. I probably have another five, six years before that could be a reality, but every deal counts, right? So We've been looking at assets that are a little bit on the smaller side. Usually, most institutional groups don't want to buy deals under 50,000 square feet. You really lose your payroll and cost efficiencies. So if you think about it, it costs the same to run a 40,000 square foot deal as it does a 60,000, 65,000 square foot deal. So most buyers, institutional groups, public companies are going to go after the bigger assets just due to the cost structure and they can just run it on better margins. So the smaller deals, I would say, that are thirty to 50,000 feet tend to get a little bit overlooked in certain markets unless they're an expansion to an existing asset or they're an annex property or the large company owns a property three miles down the road and they can have a manager go back and forth. But other than that, they get a little bit overlooked. And my partners and I, we saw an opportunity in these assets and they're still well-located. They're still stabilized. They're just a little bit smaller. So we've started to work with a management company on automating those deals and working with automated locks, kiosks, call centers, leasing enabled websites. And we still have a manager at those sites, but the hours are just scaled down. So they actually make sense economically for us as the owners. And they're also just not as much work as the bigger facilities and they're more stabilized. That's kind of been the strategy there.
0: So a couple of follow-up questions to that. If the hours get cut from 40 a week to, let's just say, 40 a month, how can I, as a new customer, go and actually rent a unit from one of your facilities if the manager is not there?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's actually really easy. So there's a couple ways. You could do it through the leasing-enabled website. So you can go online to our websites. You can rent a unit. Once the unit's rented... You're going to get a gate code with instructions of which unit to go to. And then once you get inside the facility, you can go to your unit and essentially unlock your lock, which you will have a pre-made code given to you that you can do all remotely. That's one way. The other way is we have a kiosk that does the exact same process. It's just more of a piece of hardware that's on site in the management office. You could also call the call center for support. We have a call center that's 70 hours a week that you can call. They can guide you through it. And our management company is also developing the tech and software in the next couple months to enable live video chat conferencing. So you can actually talk to a person virtually if you're having trouble with the kiosk or the website or you're just confused about how the process goes. But the process is pretty simple. So I think with those Three different ways it kind of gives coverage to all the needs that people really have.
0: Can you tell us about the latest deal that you're working on?
1: The latest deal we're working on, I'm assuming the one that that we're buying, you're asking about. Yeah, so that deal is a deal in New Jersey. It's about thirty-eight thousand net rentable square feet, about two hundred fifty units, about twenty-five minutes outside of Philadelphia in a very dense area of New Jersey, a nice suburb. It's right by a high school, sits on a nice road with about 12,000 cars going by it. In the three-mile radius, there's probably about 90,000 people. Five-mile, there's about 250,000 people. So it's a very dense, good suburban pocket, and it's very well located. The building was built in 2010. It's pretty new in that regard, but the property is fully stabilized. It's about 100% occupied right now. And we really like it because it's new, needs minimal capex, stabilized, has some upside on the rents. And we're also going to do two minor expansions. We're going to do an expansion in the back of about 2,200 square feet of drive up units. And then we're going to do an interior expansion on the interior office building of about 1,500 square feet. So we like the deal because in this environment, we can't be heroes, especially with construction or any management plans, we want to kind of be doing pretty easy and simple deals to find value. And we found that this deal complemented our last acquisition, being that it's not too far away and will provide us a little bit more efficiencies and maybe a better exit on the back end. But also, this deal just kind of had everything we looked for, had the value add on the rents, had some expansion, was stabilized. The owner did a great job of keeping it in good shape. And it was also all ground floor larger units, which worked really well for the automation kiosk mall that we've been doing as well. So pretty Mm -hmm. excited about it.
0: We have to talk about the elephant in the room, the coronavirus or COVID-19. Do you still think with all that's going on in the world that this is still a good investment for someone to make? What steps have you taken to prepare for this?
1: Yeah, so we were negotiating this property, I would say, late. February. So we were very in tune and aware of what was going on with COVID. I don't think anyone could have expected that we gotten to this point. I mean, we were still able to go to the property. It was kind of right at the time where things were starting to shut down. So we knew exactly what was going on. Like I said, I don't think we expected economic disaster right now, but we believe that we're buying the property at a really good basis. And I think that's the most important thing. We're long-term investors here. And we definitely think it's going to be a challenging one or two years here, depending on what happens. But we have five, six-year, seven-year timelines here. And we're willing to weather out the storm. But I think what's interesting about self-storage is that historically, it's tended to fare very well during these tougher economic times. And it's really because it's a need-based product. You don't need to go to the movie theater. You don't need to go shopping. But the unfortunate thing is when people need storage, it's really in demand and it's driven by life events. So unfortunately, when people downsize their businesses and they have a warehouse that's 5,000 square feet and they have to downsize, they might go to a storage space. If a small business owner shuts down his business, he might need more space and need to vacate his unit and he might go to storage. If someone loses their house and downsizes their apartment, they might need storage to transition. Someone moves, loses their job, they could be a candidate. The reality is, is that death and divorce also lead to transition times. And we're unfortunately seeing a lot of that right now and a lot of the pain in the economy and people going through hard times. So storage is needed. And it's a really low cost option if you think about it for what it can do for you. I mean, if you could spend 110 bucks a month and store your entire apartment during a tough time, it's a pretty low cost option. And it provides the customer a lot of value. So for that reason, I think it's going to be really needed in the next couple of years, as it always is, even in good times, when businesses are expanding and consumers are spending more and people are going on vacations and whatnot. But what's really good about the industry is people are really working with tenants right now, talking to other operators, and people are not doing late fees and working out flexible payment plans. And they're not auctioning off people's stuff if they're late on the payment or haven't paid. So I think it's good to see kind of the other industries come together during this time to help tenants out and kind of get through these tough times. But I believe in the business and I think if you're in a good location, you're gonna be in a lot of demand in the next couple of years with people having different life changes. And then furthermore, with COVID going on, everyone is taking sanitation way more seriously than ever before. So I think offices are going to change and how that affects. They might need storage as well, just in terms of shifting around models and redoing office space and the way that we're going to have to have more separation in the workforce. But I think it's just interesting to see how things are changing right now.
0: Now, how are you compensated on these deals? How are the general partners? How do you make money?
1: The way most people make money on these deals is it's called a, on the promote. So you really make your money in the back end. You have little fees along the way that compensate you. If there's usually an acquisition fee up front that pays for all the time you put in for the deal. And a lot of people in the business realize that for that one deal to get done, you had to look at 500 deals just to find that one. So we put a ton of time and one of our associates, he probably worked on this owner for two years to get the deal done. So there's just been a lot of, time and effort and even though it's a smaller deal the amount of effort that goes into these is is incredible throughout the three four months of due diligence mm-hmm. and we're not a big firm either so we operate pretty lean with three or four guys we really need those little fees i guess to cover overhead along the way but really where you get incentivized is on the back end so you hit a certain threshold over return you take a bigger piece of the profits on the back end so it's a win-win for all the general partners are incentivized to make as much money for the limited partners as well and if they exceed that certain threshold they get a bigger piece of the profit on the back end and that's where you get your money so i think it's set up well in the sense that everyone's incentivized and no one gets paid until everyone's money is returned and you exceed expectations
0: so zach this business model it's nothing new in the storage industry you put some boxes down and people come out and they rent them. Do you see a shift coming in the industry in the way that these properties are run day to day?
1: Yeah, I'm a big believer in automation. And even outside of storage, you're starting to see it in all other areas of business. I mean, just to name a few obvious ones, it was maybe a couple months ago, I went into Panera Bread and I hadn't been there in a while. And I always loved Panera. And I went in and it was maybe six or seven o'clock. And for a second, I thought they were closed because I didn't really see anyone behind the counter. But then I realized that I turned to my left and I saw these kiosks. So I just ordered my sandwich, sat down, and then the food was delivered. And it took me a little bit of time to kind of get used to it because I hadn't been to a Panera with that model. But that becomes more the norm. I don't think people are going to think it's weird or be afraid of interacting with technology to get their goods and services. And I think you're seeing it Across all industries, and you're seeing it with airlines, with kind of check-in kiosks, you're seeing it with hotels, you're seeing it with retail, with Amazon, Walmart, Costco. But I really think you're going to see it across all sectors as the technology gets better. And what's really interesting about storage is you didn't have as much automation in storage, especially on the bigger facilities. For the really big facilities, you'll always have people there the facilities of 100,000 square feet and and big cities, you're going to see technology supplement those facilities. And maybe instead of having three people, you might have two people. Or maybe instead of having people there six days a week, you might have them there four days a week. And the other two days are covered by kiosks and call centers and leasing-enabled websites. But what's really interesting to me is how COVID sped this timeline up. I mean, I think everyone in the industry... Could agree that at least in self storage, automation was really, I don't want to say coming after the industry, but I think in two, three years, everyone could agree that you're going to see a lot of facilities become more and more automated. And now it's pretty much happened overnight with a lot of facilities. You're starting to see a lot of bigger operators do contactless rentals, customer reserve unit online, they get a gate code. They open up the gate and they go to their unit and then their lock is in their unit and they're all ready to go. And it's all done online without even having to have a manager to customer interaction. So I think that's really fascinating. And it's interesting how maybe those processes were in development for six months and gonna be tested out, but it really gave businesses no choice and they just had to just go and just do it, right? Just rip the band-aid off and just go try it. And what I'm hearing is it's actually working out really well and I just think it's fascinating how this timeline has gotten so sped up and you see it across all industries right now.
0: All right, Zach. So we're going to do some rapid fire questions now. want to know what was your first job ever and what did you take away from that?
1: First job ever was I was a soccer player growing up. I always played probably at age two or three. My dad taught me how to play and I also played in college and continued and, and still today. But my first job Was probably when I was ten or eleven years old, and I was a soccer coach for younger kids. So I was in my neighborhood. I I had a a kid who was probably four or five years younger than me, and he liked playing soccer. And I think I got paid like maybe fifteen dollars for an hour and a half to kind of run him through drills. It was funny because like his his dad would drive him over and drop him off in my house, and we weren't that far apart in age, but I definitely had those four or five years over him in, in skill. So I would just teach him what I was learning and run through drills. And yeah, that was definitely my first job. What did I take away from it? I think for that, it was it was really a personal, you're dealing with someone one-on-one. So you have to build a connection with them and respect. And the main thing is, is people want to enjoy working with you. So you have to bring a good sense of energy to the workplace and be fun. And I think that's really what I learned beyond you know being respectful and whatnot. But definitely just a good sense of high energy, as I thought was important for that job. And I try to bring that every day to what I do with uh, my employees.
0: What book are you reading now? I'm finishing up Never Split the Difference
1: by Chris Voss. I think it's a really interesting book. It's mostly about negotiation techniques and gets into the psychology of kind of how people think and where people get stuck on when they're negotiating different things and whatnot. And it's been really helpful for me in terms of you definitely get into more tense situations when you're sometimes negotiating real estate, especially there's some interesting personalities and different types of people you meet in all ages and different areas of the country. So you definitely get put on on your heels a lot. And it's just given me kind of a more composed way of thinking and how I approach deals and negotiating.
0: And who is your favorite person to follow on social media?
1: I really like Mark Cuban. I really like Sarah Blakely from The Creative of Spain. I like Mark because he's just so, so direct. He breaks down really complicated things in just such a simple way. I think just the way he approaches business is just... I've always admired his direct, simple approach to problem-solving. And then Sarah Blakely's awesome. I remember listening to her podcast on How I Built This, and I was just so inspired by her and how she just hustled her way she didn't have anything Didn't take any investor money and she's just a badass honestly and i was just so impressed when i heard her story and i still follow her and stalk her videos of you know her crazy trips her family but i think she's just an amazing entrepreneur as well
0: well zach thanks for joining us today we really appreciate your time
1: thanks tom so much appreciate it
0: Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.